I'm Devorah Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. So here we are, we're talking about Pesach, and uh, I'm sure everybody is starting to think, or you already have been decluttering. So we could give a whole sheer on decluttering and all of the uh, Torah ideas about making room for things and getting rid of stuff. But uh, when I get into my mode of decluttering, my husband gets nervous. You know, I'm walking around the house going, this is old, this is old, this is old. I'm getting rid of this. And he starts worrying that maybe he's old too, and I'm going to throw him out as well. So he says, oh, I better be careful. (laughs) You know, I hope I'm not one of those old things. Okay. Anyway, um, another thing I like to say around this time period is that I become a bit of a misogynist. That's a terrible word. It means a hater of womankind. But I just like, I, you know, like I said at the beginning to the women who were on, we all have our own styles of getting ready for Pesach, you know. And when you meet those women who make you really nervous, you know, because their kugels are already in the freezer and they've already cooked everything and it's only Hanukkah, you know. It's like, it's really, really, it just, it just gets to you. As a matter of fact, Rabbit Sandina Schoonmaker, who's, classes we are going to be drawing from, you know, says that, you know, she thinks that maybe Hashem put Purim before Pesach to stop those women because, you know, why are we bringing all this chametz into our house like four weeks before Pesach? She said, you know, maybe it's because this is a way of God saying, you don't have to get so nervous. You don't have to start Hanukkah time. You could start after Pesach. It's going to be okay. So um, there's a reason for everything. All right, so the idea with Pesach, of course, is the more we prepare, and this is true of anything in life, the more preparation that's involved in whatever it is that you're doing, getting ready for a job interview, uh, meeting somebody important who you're only going to have a few minutes with to be able to, let's say, ask for what you need. The more you prepare, the more you're going to get out of things. And of course, a big part of Pesach is the preparation, as with every Jewish holiday. And the preparation, as Gail mentioned, should not be drudgery. And what we're going to try and do today is lift it up to a spiritual level so that we can all really appreciate that what's going on externally, right? The external actions that we do with our bodies are meant to inform our emotions And they're a clue to what's supposed to be going on within us, right? Jewish education, uh, I like to say, is not information, but transformation. And so too, every Jewish holiday that we go through, through throughout the year is supposed to transform us and make us that much more elevated. The way that we see time, one of the ways that time is illustrated in Judaism is not as a straight timeline, although that is definitely a way of viewing time. But the other way is as a a spiral. And the idea Rav Dessler explains is that whenever we come around to a Jewish holiday, we're not just commemorating what happened way back then. We're actually able to tap into the same spiritual energy 
that was released into the world because of those events. And if we can tap into those energies, we can use them to grow. We can use them to become more spiritually developed and elevated. And therefore, all of the different mitzvot that go together with every holiday are, again, the external ways of us arousing ourselves to learn the internal lessons and to be moved and shifted out of our regular, out of our normal. I like to say that, you know, Pesach is incredible because what Pesach really makes us do, I realize, I had this Kiddush just a few years ago. Because I've moved so much in my life, I think the panic of Pesach is the same panic that a person gets when they're moving. And in the Gemara, the Gemara tells us that moving is one of the most traumatic experiences. It's up there with a death in the family and marriage, getting married, okay? So we're talking about major, you know, commotion on some level. And what is Hashem making us do if we're not moving? We're not necessarily moving out of our house, but we're fact, we're simulating as if we're moving out because we got to get everything out of those one cupboards and put them in the other cupboards and then take all those things out of those cupboards and put them in the other cupboards. And it's very disconcerting. It's very, it moves you out of your comfort zone right? And when we're moved out of our comfort zone, guess what? We are much more open to change. We're a little bit vulnerable, right? That's the big word today, vulnerability, right? We're vulnerable. We're, 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 we've, we've, we've been knocked off our equilibrium, and listen, weren't the Jews also knocked off their equilibrium when it came to picking up and moving out of a place that they'd been used to for 210 years? They had a slave mentality. They were used to being slaves. They knew what every day would bring, which is why they even would panic in the desert and say, take us back to the familiar. Take us back to what we know, even if, you know. Uh, from an objective point of view, it isn't the greatest life. At least we know what it is. And so this idea of moving, which is what, what, what Pesach really does, right? And then not only do we have to move out, but after Pesach, we have to move back in, okay? We have to get everything back where it was. And if you're like me, that takes about six months. It's like, as I open each cover, I go, oh, okay, let's put this away now, you know? And, you know, if you're somebody else, it's done in an hour and it's over, right? But the point is, is whether at the beginning or the end of the holiday, there's this, seems to be, to me, that there's this theme of moving, and moving, like I said, is one of the top three in terms of really knocking you off center. And when we're knocked off center, we tend to be more open. We tend to be more vulnerable. And hopefully it's going to make us grow. So cleaning out the chametz all around your house, right? Ferreting out those corners and picking up things that you never did before. What it's really supposed to be an exercise in as we're doing this externally is that we are also getting rid of the chametz that's inside of us. So what is chametz? What does chametz represent? So there's a lot of different ideas about chametz, but the most popular one 
is that chametz is arrogance, right? Chametz is bread. Chametz is puffed up. It's bread that has risen. It's flour and water that has risen. And so chametz always represents, you know, we just finished our whole series on anger. It represents everything that arrogance brings to a person. Anger, right? Egocentricity. I'm okay. I don't have to change. I'm perfect the way I am. It's everybody else that needs to change. It represents limitation. Because when we're egocentric, we have many illusions. And it makes it hard to change. So Hamid's basically prevents us from being liberated. And it prevents us from realizing our true potential. And Hamid's is also uh, compared to the Yetzirahara. Okay, um, now the opposite of chametz obviously is matzah. And matzah is made of the exact same ingredients, flour and water. The only difference is that matzah does not rise. The only difference is time, right? Matzah has to be made in 18 minutes. If it's a second over 18 minutes, the natural scientific thing that happens when flour and water are together is that it will naturally start to rise. That's even without yeast. Okay. So time, time is what makes the difference. But matzah, what does matzah represent? Matzah represents everything that's the opposite of chametz. It represents humility. It rep represents simplicity. It represents the ability to be able to put other people first before our ego. And matzah gives us the ability to break through illusions. It gives us clarity. And that's what we took when we went out of Mitzrayim. And the word Mitzrayim, I'm sure many of you have heard this idea before, comes from the word Metzar, which means narrow, constricting. So we needed the matzah to be able to get out of that place of ego and illusion and be able to leave Egypt. So the idea is that, again, when we're sitting at our seders and we're telling the story, we're supposed to be reenacting it in a way that makes us understand that in every, every generation, in every year, we have the ability to move out of our own place of limitation and boundary our own limits that we've set upon ourselves or our ego or our Yetzirah has imposed upon us through illusion and break free with the matzah, right? Because the question is, why can't I just get rid of the chametz? Sorry, why can't I just eat matzah for Pesach? Why do I have to get rid of the chametz? You know, let's just eat matzah. So there's a Pasuk in Tehillim that says, Sur me ra the aseto, right? You have to get rid of the bad, what's preventing, in order to be able to do the good. Turn away from bad and do good. So there's two steps to the process. 
So we have to get rid of the chametz and not just simply eat the matzah. Now, just one other foundational idea about Pesach before we get more into our Musr part of the class is that it's very important to realize, and it's, you know, it's a simple idea, but it's, I think it's a transformational idea, is that when we left Egypt, all we did was change one master with another, okay? We left behind the oppressive, immoral master called Paro, whose name actually represents illusion. And we switched over to a benevolent and loving master, right? Who takes care of our every need. So we went from being, so to speak, slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt to being slaves or subjugated to Hashem at Mount Sinai. When we, when we agreed to accept the Torah or we were coerced to accept the Torah, however you want to look at it, okay? Um, so this is supposed to be a subjugation of gratitude, right? It's a, it's a subjugation to a master who we love and identify, who we know has our best interests at heart. And it's the subjugation of gratitude, much like the intelligent and wise child, the forever grateful child who recognizes throughout life, all he owes his parents and knows he could never do enough in return. I remember having this feeling at the end of my parents' lives, particularly my mother's life. I mean, they died three, only three and a half weeks apart. But, you know, all those, all the, that year when I was going to the hospital every day and, 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 and just my whole life was around it as, as people are when they're taking care of their ailing parents. The sense that I had was, first of all, I, it, was, it was not a burden at all. Because the sense that I felt was, you know, even with going every day, even with everything I'm doing for my mother, for example, like it's not one iota. It could never reach what she's done for me. I mean, let's start with the diaper changing. Let's start with, let's start with the birth itself, right? And then the diaper change and everything else. There's nothing you can do to repay. And that's a flesh and blood parent. So if we have the proper perspective and gratitude, which is what Judaism's foundation stone is with Hashem, then there's nothing that we don't want to do for this master, right? The greatest accolade that Moshe was called at the end of his life was that he was an Eved Hashem, right? The greatest human being, the one who reached his highest potential, the leader of the Jewish people. He was an Eved Hashem. He was simply a servant of God. And that is a process that takes a lot of humility, a lot of breaking through illusions, clarity, understanding. Again, about our helplessness and how much we owe the one who created us, the one who gives to us, much like a parent, but obviously magnified billions of times. But the parent-child paradigm helps us to understand it. Okay. And the truth is, as Ben Shapiro says, and I'm sure many of you have heard of him, the human being is wired to worship. A human being is going to worship something. And he basically says there are three choices. God, the state, 
or the self. And I've spoken about this before that we're living in a generation that certainly does worship the self, right? Narcissism is no longer in the DSM manual for mental illness because the idea is that everyone suffers from it today. It's become the new normal. My coffee, my way, my kishka, my way, my jeans, my way, my herring, my way, right? It's my way or the highway. And we are not allowed to suffer. We are shocked if we suffer because that's not the way life's supposed to be as opposed to our, our great boobies and zadies who said, we are supposed to suffer. And if we don't today, well, today's a happy day, right? Today's a fluke, you know, whatever. We just, I, I'm, I'm giving extremes, but that's basically the difference that we've come to. And, you know, Bob Zimmerman, better known as Bob Dylan, right? When he went through his religious period, he also noted that you're going to have to serve somebody. It could be the devil or it could be the Lord, but you are going to have to serve somebody. So it's an illusion to think that we don't. So better serve the, the, the right thing and align yourself with the right thing. Okay. So it's a mitzvah for us to see ourselves, right? The mitzvah of Pesach is to see yourself as if you just came out of Egypt. As it says in the Haggadah, in every generation, one is obliged to see himself as though he himself had actually gone forth from Egypt. And the word to see is the word lirot, right? And the Rambam makes a play on this word. He, he says it's leharot, which means to show. So how do we see ourselves as coming out of Egypt? So the whole Haggadah has, the whole saying of the Seder has all these props, right? And the props that we have at the Seder, the wine, the, the bitter herbs, the salt water, the leaning, all of these different things that we're doing are supposed to help us realize and recognize and be in a play sort of, of, of the whole coming out of Egypt, and he says, the Raman says, you have to show, meaning you have to act it out. You have to convince yourself and make yourself feel it. And the more we make our, ourselves feel that we're coming out of Egypt, you know, I always used to joke that by the time a woman gets to the Seder table, she definitely knows what it felt like to be a slave. You know, if you could stay, I remember my mother literally falling asleep in her matzo ball soup. I mean, you know, it's like we've definitely experienced the servitude part of things. You know, and, and now that we're at the Seder, like, okay, let's see what freedom feels like. Maybe it's just sleep, you know? I mean, I know I'm so wired by the time I get to the table that one year, I mean, I have to tell you, I, I had the first cup of wine. I didn't realize I couldn't tolerate wine anymore. I had the first cup of wine and I was literally under the table giggling, you know, and my kids were like, mom, what is wrong with you? You know, but I was so exhausted already. And, you know, like a month before you're, and then you drink wine, like, come on. Anyway, they must've been tougher in the olden days. Let, let's face it, their houses weren't as big. Okay. They just swept the floor and they were done. All right. Okay. So um, <clears throat> the altar of Kelm says it's very difficult to do this, you know, to really feel like you came out of Egypt because it's an experiential mitzvah and very few people can actually do it. 
you know, the Sephardim have different customs where they walk around the table and they carry matzah on their back. And they say, they have this whole thing where they say, where did you come from? They say, oh, I came from Mitzrayim. I came from Egypt. And they say, and where are you going to? And they say, I'm going to Yerushalayim, right? And people do all kinds of things. We were only one time in a hotel for Pesach. We were moving actually from New York. And we went to a Pesach hotel because it was very difficult that year. And I remember it's like you're in a room with everybody making their seders. And it's like the whole first seder, I was so busy watching everybody else's seder. I missed my own, you know. So the second seder was a little more relaxed because I was used to all the, uh, you know, all the different stuff going on around me. But you saw Spartan walking around their table and it was like, oh, that's a nice bin hug. You know, I want that one. Anyway, so... The Elder of Kelm says it's very hard to experience this because, um, and he says you need to think deeply about it and engage your brain. But um, Dina Schoonmaker, and, and this was written last year, the beginning of the virus said that, you know, it's a little bit easier for all of us this year because we know what a maka feels like, right? We know there were 10 mako, 10 plagues. So we've just lived through one and are still living through one. So we get, get a bit of a better sense, you know, we can't go to America without who knows what kind of things that we have to go through. And we certainly can't come back without all kinds of other things we have to go through. So, you know, to, to try to picture Mitzrayim and not being able to leave and go freely, which is the way it's been for us this year, is not as difficult as it might've been when times were normal. So the last point I want to leave you with, with this idea is the altar of Kelm says, why were there so many makot in Egypt? Why did we need, why did they need 10 of them? And he says that it teaches us about human nature. Every makkah, every makkah made the people panic. But when it was over, when it was taken away, they went back to business as usual. Everything became normal. We know, right? Every time there was a maka, Paro said, okay, okay, I'm letting the people go. And as soon as things calmed down, he changed his mind. But that wasn't only him. The altar of Kelm is saying that's the nature of human beings. When something happens that sets them off, that, that makes them move out of their equilibrium. But the nature of human beings is as soon as it goes away, they go right back to the way they were. And that's why I've mentioned in other classes that, that Yisro, right, came and joined the Jewish people. He was unique. Everybody heard about the, the splitting of the Yom Suf. Everybody heard about what was going on with the Jewish people that these slaves had left Egypt. But only Yisro got up and joined the Jewish people. Everybody else went back to business as usual. And we have to realize and be careful and know because everybody asks the question, you know, either they say, when's it going to be normal again? I just want to go back to normal. And then other people say, no, we don't want it to be normal. We want it to be a better world. We want something to have come from this. We want there to have been to some incredible changes that happen. People are going to be nicer to each other. We're not going to pollute the environment the way we do. We're going to get rid of terrorism and, and, and wars because people will realize you're just hurting yourself, you know, whatever it is. We don't want to go back to normal. 
So the question here, I just want to talk about a little bit is how will this coronavirus change you? Because God willing, it is going to be over. I'm sure all of you who are from Canada know that all of a sudden they're vaccinating people between 60 and 64. Okay. Now, I don't know. I feel like I'm getting out of Egypt or something because all of a sudden, you know, I was like, not, I don't like to think about things in the future. So I figured, okay, when it's my turn, it's my turn. I know the 80 year olds are going and then my husband's going to go ahead of me. And, you know, eventually maybe June, July, I'll, whatever. Now, all of a sudden, I feel like I'm getting rushed out of Egypt, you know, I'm getting ding, 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 sign up here, sign up there. I'm like signed up at 25 places. Okay. You know, all right. And whoever calls me first, they get me, you know, but I feel like I'm getting out of Egypt before everybody else. I don't know what's going on. Anyway, I'll take it. All right. So <clears throat> what can we take with us? And that, that's the question. So one thing I want you to think about this Pesach is a Corona-related Kabbalah, right? Something that's going to make you different, even when this is all over. I'm going to smile more at other people that I don't even know. I'm going to say good morning to strangers. Uh, whatever it is, some little thing that you're going to do differently because of what we've all been through, right? That makes you feel more connected to people because if this pandemic's done anything, it's shown how interconnected we are, right? My pain is your pain. Your success is my success. Yay, you got the vaccine. Yay, you got the vaccine. Whatever it is, we're all interrelated and interdependent. Okay, the next Amen. idea. Sorry, did you, anybody want to say anything? Amen. Amen. Amen, sisters. Okay. We did that. I'm trying to give you three classes in one because there's just so much good stuff and I, I, I can't. All right. Let's talk about Pesach as the Chag of Emuna or Bitachon. We're going back to our Bitachon ideas because Pesach is the Chag where we strengthen our emuna, our belief in God, and of course, our trust in God, which is belief put into action, right? A person can believe, but they don't live their life as if they do, because they're always panicked, and they're always worried, and they're always over-controlling situations, etc. And bitachon means you go with the flow. You recognize where you end and God begins, and if you're nervous and anxious and upset while you're doing the doing, then there's something off with your bitachon. Because of course we're supposed to do, but not with those kind of feelings. We're supposed to do with the knowledge that we do the best that we can to the degree that we can, but we know that the results are always in Hashem's hands. And if we overdo, it's not good. And if we underdo, it's also no good. And every person has to find that place. But if you're anxious and worried and yelling at people, there's something wrong. Okay. So the Chazonish says the main purpose of Bitachon is that you can lead a life with tranquility. And Bitachon deals with your hidden fears. So Pesach is supposed to teach me how to deal with the difficulties in my own life. Pesach is going to give me the tools that will lead me to Simcha. So there's a lot of connection between Purim and Pesach. They're both called 
they're both sort of under the umbrella of this time of simcha, of increased happiness. And the simcha is connected to bitachon. Then when a person really understands that God is running the world, and he's even running my world, there's a certain ability to achieve deeper levels of joy, of serenity, that come, that, that really are, you know, part and parcel of joy, of happiness, of simcha. And that's also what we want to tap into. Okay, so just like the Megillah, the Haggadah has a lot of similarities and differences. I have a whole sheer on that, but I don't want to go deeply into that, even though it's fascinating. But let's just say that, you know, the Megillah story took place in nine years. Some people say 14 years. People had no idea what was going on, right, until it was all over. They felt totally in the dark, totally in the middle of a story with not necessarily a good ending. And the pace of story that we read, we read it in one night. We go from the beginning, from the suffering to the redemption, even though the story itself took hundreds of years, right? We read the Megillah in half an hour, which took nine years, some say 14 years for the story to unfold. And the Haggadah, we read in an hour, if you're lucky. If you're not, you're there for three hours <laughs> before you get a morsel of food. And, and um, and and um, and we're basically going through hundreds of years of slavery in one night. So, so it's easy to see the closure, the end of the story after the difficulty. It's easy to be calm while we're telling the story because we know the end of the story. Like somebody once said to me, and I never, it never, it stuck in my mind. Like there were people in Egypt who were born and died there, right? And not necessarily died because of their slavery, but just they, they lived there out their lifespan and never ever saw the Geula. They never saw the day, right? They were there for 210 years. So were there people who were born there, had families there, became boobies and zadies there and didn't go out. So they never saw that the end of the story actually happened, right? But for even those that went out, I mean, they were in the middle of the story. They had no idea whether they're gonna get out, what's gonna happen, okay? So what's the take home message for me, for my life? How can this help me when I'm in the middle of my story? And I have a lot of worries and I have a lot of fears and I have a lot of angst. So the Zohar talks about matzah. It's brought down in the Sifsei Chaim Sefer, Rabbi Chaim Friedlander. Matzah is called michla dasuta, which is an Aramaic term that means it's a medicinal food. And it's called the food of healing. When the Jewish people left Egypt, they knew nothing about Amuna. They knew nothing about God. They had very little understanding. Remember, the Jews in Egypt worshipped idols just like the Egyptians. Except for their Jewish names, their clothing, and the fact that they spoke Hebrew, they had really lost all connection with God. Or many of them had. Obviously, we always had 
you know, Moshe, Miriam, and Shifra, and Pua. But as a people, it was hard for them to see how God runs the world and that God is taking care of them. So Hashem said, let them taste this food of medicine and it will teach them about Amuna. Because what they're suffering from is doubt and anxiety because they attribute everything to cause and effect. They attribute everything to their own efforts. You know, and it's not unlike this pandemic, right? Where maybe one of the biggest lessons people have learned is that we're not in control. I mean, hopefully we're more in control with the virus, but even with the vaccine, I mean, it's funny, but Dina Schoonmaker was saying that in Israel, the same women that were fretting over not having their family last year, a lot of them are saying, oh, it's okay, you know, we don't have to have our family because they're realizing how much easier it is. And they're even saying things like, and who knows if the vaccine even works, you know, like, who knows? So, you know, people have just, you know, human beings are able to uh, adapt very easily, actually, right? Very easily. So that seems to be the, the word on the street, she said. She's actually shocked by these same people who were up in arms last year. Now they're going, I don't know. It was kind of nice, you know, it was quiet, went to bed, or I didn't have to make so much food, you know? Anyway. All right. So why is the medicine matzah? Why? So the mitzvah of eating matzah, by the way, is only on the first night of Pesach. That's the only time that we really have the mitzvah. Okay, it's a mitzvah min ha-Torah, from the Torah, not from the rabbis. And we don't even have to eat matzah the rest of Pesach. <clears throat> but we do get credit for doing it. Why? Because it's good for our soul. It's the medicine of the soul. <clears throat> and we obviously have an iser. We're forbidden to eat chametz for the next seven days. So why is this? So again, we said the difference between chametz and matzah is 18 minutes. The same dough after 18 minutes becomes chametz. The difference between the two is time. But it's the difference between a mitzvah and a vera, and an avera, right? The difference between eating flour and water and it being a mitzvah as a... Or, or eating the same flour and water and it being an avera is just a matter of time. Wow, isn't that interesting? So how do we understand this? Okay, so according to this approach, which is brought down by the Zohar, yes, ladies, we're learning Kabbalah, okay? And Sifse Chayim, okay, is that chametz is dough that was left to rise. And what that represents, the dough that's rising, it represents the process, the processes of the world, of this world. The idea is that eventually this dough that's rising will culminate in Gale's Chala, but it will take a lot of time until that happens. And the idea of life is that we are living in a process. We're part of a process where we didn't see the beginning. We don't see the end necessarily. And we're in the middle of the story. And it makes it very difficult. 
because in the middle of that story, we have a lot of challenges. We have a lot of worries. We have a lot of stress and angst. We're living in the past. We're worried about the future. We don't know how to enjoy the present, right? And that's the way it is. Matzah, however, which has the same ingredients, is a crunched, diminished process. It's like a compressed computer file. It's like, instead of reading, you know, Hamlet, you get the cliff notes. You read Cole's notes. They still have Cole's notes. They don't have Cole's anymore. <laughs> anyway, right? You read the compressed version. That's what matzah represents. It's compressed, okay? So in this world, when you have a long process, there's a lot of room for depth. There's a lot of room for overthinking, overanalyzing, worrying, not knowing. And these twists and turns cause so much room for worry and doubt that happen in our lives. And we attribute success or failure to this act or to that one. I should have done this. I would have done this. If only I'd known I could have. And we spend a lot of time doing that. The Zohar says, if you want emuna over Pesach, the first night you need to eat matzah. You need to eat this medicinal food to help bring you to a metaphysical view of things. To be able to tell yourself, I'm in the world of chametz. I'm in the world of process. But Hashem is above time. He already knows what's going to happen. He sees the past, the present, and the future together. He sees it in one moment, crunched. This is the metaphysical idea of time. And everything is always affected by his rutzon, his will, what he wants to happen, where he wants the process to end. Before the problem even exists, we have a Jewish idea that Hashem creates the refuah before the makkah. That Hashem already has the solution. The medicines was already there. So the idea is I'm in the middle of a process. I'm worried. I don't know what's going to be. But Hashem chose what is going to be. And bitachon means that it is, going to, it is good. Whatever Hashem chose for me, it is good. Again, our bodies may not feel like it's good. Our bodies might not see it, but it's always good because we're a package deal. Our body is just our clothing. Who I am essentially is my, me is my soul, right? We always point here when we say me. Why do we point here? Why don't we point here or here, right? We point to the place where our neshama is, where we naturally know that's where it is, where our breath is. Nishima, nishama, same word, breath. That's the me that we have to identify with that knows everything is good. The same tati and himmel that, that, that you know, was with us at our birth and before our birth and all the way through our life up to this point is with us all the way to the end and through to the next place that is our destination ultimately. So it's all good. It's all good for that neshama. Okay. And one day we're going to see it. And that's the matzah, right? 
So this is the hug of liberation because it's liberating to think this way. It's liberating yourself from worry. And without worry, you can enjoy bitachon, that Hashem will do what is the best for me, regardless of even what I do. Okay? We make choices. We go down certain roads. And we can spend our whole life saying, why did I do that? I should have done that. If only I'd done that. But it's all futile. Because Hashem is running the show and he always will make you end up where you're supposed to end up. Even if you think that you took a wrong turn, just enjoy the view. Enjoy the ride, whichever turn you take. Okay. So the the medicine of matzah is bitachem. I don't know the results. I don't know how this will play out. But the matzah teaches me I don't need to know. Hashem has taken care of things and loves me. That's what the Jews had to learn before they went into the Midbar, right? The Midbar was a tough place. It was full of snakes and scorpions. It was heat. There was no food there. They couldn't leave Egypt until they went out with this matzah, this bread, this medicine, this bitachon. And we know four-fifths of Jews did not leave Egypt, according to one commentary, right? Hamushim relates to the idea that one-fifth of the Jews left and everybody else stayed behind. So this matzah was only for those Jews who were able to live in a place of bitachon. So one of the themes of the mitzvot of Pesach is that all of these external actions that we do is because there's an expression in in Hebrew that your heart goes after your actions, right? Your insides are affected by what you are doing externally. I mean, we know this, this is not heavy, you know, this is psychology 101, right? We know it even with our thoughts, the thoughts we think uh, um, affect how we feel. The city of happiness is in the state of mind. And so too with our actions, right? When we're excited, when we do something with excitement, with reasons, with alacrity, when we get up and move, already our mood is different than if we just lay on the couch and give in to the depression and the sadness. So the external affects the internal. So all of these different activities that we do, and eating matzah is one of the main ones, because I need to ingest this medicine called matzah to heal myself of the sickness, which is called doubt and worry. So the first night we eat the medicine, then it's followed by a seven-day regimen of abstaining from chametz. It's like an alcoholic who has to abstain from drink right? We wean ourselves away from the idea of processes. Then I have to go back into my regular life, my world of process, okay? After Pesach, we go back to the world of process. But while we're in Pesach, we're trying to live above time, above past, present, and future in a place where God exists, in a place where bitachon resides, which is that God knows the whole story and the ending is good for each one of us and for mankind as a whole. And that's where the matzah gets us, gets us to. 
So it's hard to have a metaphysical perspective when you're stuck in the physical world. Okay, let's move to one more idea. <clears throat> So how can I do this? How can I realize as I remove the chametz around me, ladies, we should be thinking, where do I have a chametz process in my own life? What are the issues or stories that I agonize about over and over and over again? What are the things I beat myself up over and say, if only, if only, if only, right? Something, some chametz process that's taking a long time to see the end of the story. And I'm unsure and worried about it. You know, we all have this coronavirus, which has definitely been a process, right? And we're hoping we're going to see the end of it. But we're sharing this whole process together as a global community. So where do my doubts lie? Okay. <clears throat> So as we said, and this is what we're going to be talking about after Pesach, the idea of alacrity and zrizos, uh, how it helps in a Vodas Hashem being energetic about what you're doing and focused. So this goes together with the idea of time. The idea of time and zrizos of alacrity are, are, are themes of Pesach. Time is a major theme in the story of Pesach. It's so important in the making of matzah. If you've ever been to a matzah bakery, which I had the, uh, I think I went with the Hebrew school in Manhattan Beach Jewish Center. We went to Borough Park and it was so exciting. I mean, it was, you know, they had this huge clock on the wall. I have to just tell you. And they had all these women and schmuckas on their heads and they were all along this long table. They all had rolling pins. And, you know, there was a whole bell that rang that told them 18 minutes is up. And they had to get it all done in 18 minutes. And they had people taking the rolled out dough that these women were rolling at a furious pace and, you know, picking it up and putting it in the ovens and then taking it out of the ovens. And even the mixing of the flour and water was done so fast with their hands like you've never seen it. And everything, of course, 18 minutes, the bell would ring and that was it. And it was incredible. That really was a, a, an expression of Zrizos and what matzah is all about. So a few extra seconds, as we said, and the whole process is ruined. Okay? Now, maybe a yekka, a yekka, a German Jew, can get, you know, upset about this. But for the regular person, it's like, who cares? Who cares about a few seconds? Here or there, what difference does it make? I mean, we're Jews, right? We know about Jewish time. Well, at least the Sephardim especially know about Jewish time, right? It's a Jewish thing to come late to Simchas, to this, to that. I actually once heard uh, Professor Eliak, uh, uh, Yaffa Eliak, she spoke in Binghamton when we were rabbi in Revitzen there. And uh, she said something very profound. She said, you know why Jews are late? You know why Jews like to come late? She said, because we have so many things in halacha that we have to do at a certain time. You know, you have to light the candles now. You have to do get to minion now. You have to do this now. She goes, if there's no halacha involved, we are coming late. Okay? Leave me alone. Okay? Share that with your friends at the, at the Pesach Seder. Okay. So matzah turns into chametz, like we know. It becomes an avera instead of a mitzvah. So let me just explain um, this. So here on earth, we're always fighting against time, 
okay? In our world, we always feel like we're fighting against time. We're under time, right? We're oppressed by time. Like I was a kid, I didn't want to know what time it was. I don't know. I had an aversion to learning how to tell the time. Don't ask me. I don't know if I ever learned. But the, the idea was, is I was very philosophical. And I was like, I don't want to know that time is, I don't want to know that time is ticking. It makes me nervous, you know? Anyway, whatever, I changed, don't worry. Um, I still don't wear a watch, but changed a little bit. Okay, um, but the point is, is that, you know, time is oppressive. We are under it. We can't break out of it. But we can. How do we break out of time? By connecting ourselves to Hashem. Hashem is above time, right? And when I have a relationship with Hashem, I lift myself above time, above the constrictions and oppressiveness of time. For example, when I do a mitzvah, I connect to Hashem. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to connect to Hashem. I'm trying to go to a place that's above the physical, that's unbound by time, that's metaphysical, right? My body wants to sit on the couch and eat chips. That's the body that's in time, right? But my soul wants to run. And the idea of running, the idea of speed, which is part of alacrity, is that speed somehow makes you rise above time, right? When you do something with speed, with energy, an hour seems like a few moments. You get absorbed in your pace of cleaning, right? It's like, whoa, what time is it? Oh my gosh, I had an appointment, right? Because you've taken yourself above time with this alacrity, with this focus, with this mindfulness, with this being in the present, right? That's what's happening. You're connecting to Hashem. When I do a mitzvah and I do it quickly and efficiently, just like God is above time, I also rise above time. Now, I can't get rid of time, and I can't stop time, but I can minimize time, right? The Ramchal says that man's earthiness, right, that part of us that's afar, the physicality is what drags him down, what makes him sad and lazy and unable to move. But we fight against it. And he says, even the greatest of men must contend with the natural inertia of the body. So, you know, when we work quickly, you know, we're like that cartoon. You remember those cartoons like Roadrunner or whatever, where somebody's running really fast and he runs right off the edge of the cliff and he's like suspended in air. And like somehow he ends up being able to run back onto the cliff. even though He's not. Okay. Sometimes he falls down, you know, like the coyote or whatever, right? Coyote always falls down, but the woodpecker, like, you know, he's able to like run back to the cliff, even though like, how did you do that? You know? So it's kind of like, He's gone above space. He's gone above time because he's connected to the goodness, right? The God. And he's able to go against nature. Okay. It's like an airplane. An airplane flies against the laws of gravity, really. It's, it's crazy. Okay. So we've only got five minutes. So let's talk. Let's talk tachlis, as they say. Let's talk practical. So we know that Zrizus, which is what we're going to focus on after Pesach, right, 
is meaning to be quick, to be efficient, to be conscientious. And just like every other me does, some people have it naturally. It's their home air. And some people have to work much harder at it, right? There are people who are so organized, like Sally, she's got her lists and she's got her second list and she's all set, you know, and she's getting herself in order. And then there's other people who are flying by the seat of their pants. No names, no names, no names. No, I'm not that bad, okay? I'm kind of in the middle there, I think, you know. You know the definition of a fanatic, right? Anybody who's more religious than I am. Fanatic, okay. Um, so I guess you could say the same about Pesach, Queenie, right? Anybody who's got their kugels done already, fanatic, fanatic. Okay, <clears throat> I have a daughter-in-law like that, okay? When she comes here, she's got so much energy. It's literally, it's like, as soon as I wake up, I haven't even washed the sleep out of my eyes. She's at my door. I don't know what, you know, the door of my bedroom going, Emma, what can we do? Is there anything I can do? Should I start the chickens? I'm like, Oh my God, just I'll be, I'll be out in about an hour. Leave me alone. No, you know, there's just people that are like that. Like they were born like that. They didn't, they, they were, they probably came out quickly. I don't know. They were really born like that. Okay. Anyway, Ravolda says everyone has areas where they're more efficient and other areas where they're lazy. So the question a person has to ask themselves, because this will tell you a lot about yourself is which areas do I do quickly and which ones do I let go? What do I do quickly without rolling my eyes? And what do I not do without being schlepped or pushed to do it? And that's my area of atzlus, meaning laziness. Those things that I never get to. Or those things that I do them eventually, right? I procrastinate and procrastinate about them, but I'll eventually do it, you know, with a yawn and my eyes rolling. So the Mechilta teaches us, just like you don't delay with the matzah, right? You should not miss opportunities for a mitzvah. By the way, the word matzot, mem, sadik, vav, taf, are the same letters of the word mitzvot. So they do a play on the words, the rabbis, right? It says in the Torah, Ushmartem et mitzvot, that you should guard the mitzvot. Sorry, you should guard the matzot, right? And don't let them become chametz. Be careful, because one second more and they're chametz, right? So the rabbis say, Ushmartem et mitzvot, you should guard the mitzvot, meaning you better do your mitzvot with speed as well, otherwise they're going to disappear. They're going to turn into chametz. You're going to have missed the opportunity. You're going to have let it go. Okay? So matzahs are a prototype of all mitzvahs. And the idea with a mitzvah is you do it right away. Right? You don't procrastinate. The same flour and water that was a mitzvah becomes an avera if you eat it on Pesach to teach you that God is telling you, you have an opportunity to do a mitzvah and you don't do it right away. Well, maybe you've just done an avera by not doing it. I don't know if we say that, but you certainly let an opportunity slip by, slip by. And even if you do do the mitzvah, 
And this is the point that I want to leave you with. It's no longer the same mitzvah. A mitzvah that you've done with delay no longer has the same impact, not on you, not on the other person. And in terms of God himself, it's just a little bit less than he would have liked. It's missing the geschmack. You know, when you get up in the morning and the first thing you do is daven, and you do it before you eat, and you do it before you talk on the phone, and you do it before you get to your day and start checking off things, it's a whole different davening than when all morning long you're going, oh, I need to daven. Oh, I, I just have to do this. Oh, you know what? Oh, okay, I'll be there. Oh my goodness, when am I going to daven? And then all of a sudden it's mincha and you haven't said a word to God. Or maybe you do get it in, but it's different. It has a different feel to it for you and for God. I guess I'm not a priority. I guess I'm not really that important to you. There are other things that come before me. How does that feel? How does that feel with a friend? You know, you made a lunch date or you're always saying, let's get together, let's get together, but you don't really mean it and you don't really get together, right? Or somebody else that you say, let's get together and you do it right away and you say, let's make a plan, let's say a time, let's go, right? What does it tell them about how you feel about them? About how important they are. So it's the same thing with God. It's the same thing. So Rav Huttner explains, when I can do something now, or I can do the same thing a little later, sometimes delaying it is not just doing the same thing, but just a little bit later. It's no longer the same thing. Isn't that brilliant? It is flawed. It is now flawed. So the practical message is, ask yourself, the message of chametz and matzah makes me ask, where are there places that I do the same thing, but with a time delay? How would it be different if I did it right away? What things do I do in a schleppy type of way? And because of that, it doesn't have the same result. And a very simple example, let's say your child or your spouse asks you to do something for them. And you do it right away, right? Your husband asks you to get him shoelaces or whatever. And you run to get them and they're there that day. It shows I really care about you, right? The word to run, ruts, is the same word as ratzon, means my will. When I run for something, it means it matters to me. It's part of my ratzon, my desire, when I hand over the shoelaces or whatever it is somebody asks me to get them right away, the message that's attached to it is, I really care about you. You matter, right? Rabbi Orlowick says the definition of love is what's important to you is important to me, right? It's not really important to me, but I love you. So what's important to you is important to me. When I neglect to do something that somebody asked me, and then the person has to remind me twice and three times, let's say the shoelaces, right? And then I finally bring the shoelaces a few weeks later. Is it the same? Is it the same mitzvah? Does it have the same feeling with it? What's the message that's attached, right? Well, you know, I didn't really care that much. I'm very busy. I have a lot of things to do. 
that come before shoelaces, sorry, right? And we have really a lot of excuses for why we don't do those things right away. We have a garbage, yeah. We have a lot of good excuses, right? But, um, but in the other person's mind, and they could be really good excuses, but in the other person's mind, the message is you don't really care that much about me, right? There are all kinds of other things that come first. Okay, we're going to finish up. So that's the concept of chametz and matzah. When it's done quickly, when something's done quickly, it is a full and complete spiritual mitzvah. And the same action, even with just a tiny delay, has a completely different message. You know, Dina Schoonmaker gives an example. I left out a lot of examples just to be able to get through the uh, ideas. But she works a lot with young girls in Shaduchim. And she says, even a tiny little delay, and this is just a great example. Like she says, let's say somebody comes to her and asks her about a particular girl. And they just say to her, is she a happy girl? Now, if a person says right away, oh, yes, she is such a happy girl, right? So that gives a message. She says, or let's say somebody asks you, is she a happy girl? And you go, hmm, um, yeah. Yeah, she's, you know, she's happy. She's, you know, she's, she's a happy girl. Well, you know, you're not quite sure. So even a delay in a response can make all the difference in the way somebody understands it. By hesitating for four seconds, the person on the other end gets an impression that maybe she's happy, but I'm not really quite convinced, right? So that's the idea of chametz and matzah, that a few seconds can change everything. For example, another example, a plan that takes too long. I sort of mentioned this. A friend calls you and says, I haven't seen you for a long time. Can we get together? Can we meet for lunch one day? Yeah, Wednesday, let's do lunch. Okay, so that sends one message. But then you get scenario two. Let's get together. Oh, you know what? No, that, that, sorry, that day isn't, no, that week isn't good for me. Maybe next week. Oh, you know what? It's, it's still not good for me, right? Oh, anyway, it doesn't happen for three months, okay? And this sends a mes message sometimes that it's not that important to you. And even if we have every excuse in the, in the world, when we delay for three months, let's say to get together with our friend, even if the friend's an understanding person, it still doesn't communicate the same level of concern or care. I remember this happening to me where I was going to see some long lost friends and I was waiting and waiting for them for lunch. We had made up lunch. I hadn't eaten lunch. I was starving. And, you know, I hope they're not listening. Whatever they know, I, I was upset. And the next thing I know, they're like, oh, we're shopping. Why don't you come where we are? I'm like, are you kidding me? I like flew here. I'm like starving and now I have to go shopping, which I hate, you know? Anyway, the point is, is it communicates a message. I know they didn't mean to, and I was understanding, but it communicated a message that there are things that are more important than lunch with you, you know, and go ahead and starve if you like. No, anyway, um, no, one of them had the audacity to say, don't you bring something in your purse, like a bar or something, like just in case? I'm like, 
no, sorry, I didn't. Um, okay, I did manage to get a lot of clothes on that trip. So there was actually a good, a good I actually thank and bless the mail that, you know, I probably lost a couple pounds till I finally have lunch. And I got a whole summer wardrobe with friends who told the truth about how things looked on me. So it really all ended up to be a gumzula tova, but it took me a while to get there. Okay, you know, primary response, secondary response. Okay, uh, one last example. A trip to the dentist. You go at the right time when you have a slight pain, it's good. If you wait too long, you can have a root canal and end up having your teeth extracted. The lapse in time changes the experience. Experience is very different when you let it wait. Let's say a dinner that you put a lot of effort into, right? If you would serve it on time, it's gonna be the most delicious dinner. But if you end up having to wait because you know people don't come home on time or they ate cereal before your dinner, right? That same great dinner is not going to do what it wanted to do. Okay. Um, delay can make the matter worse. Solving a problem right away as opposed to letting it fester. A child's problem, ignoring their reading disability, don't, not taking the kid to get tested for glasses. Delay can often make things worse, right? I see this with the kids that I work with at school who I teach reading to. Sometimes all they needed was glasses, you know, but meanwhile, it took so long to get them the glasses that they fell behind the class. Their self-esteem is, is damaged. And it's all because there were too many other things put ahead of it. And the mother was basically giving the message of there are other things that are more important. Now, obviously, I'm being done with Kasrus, but that's the idea. Okay, you know what, we'll talk about this after Pesach too, because this is all going to be part of um, part of the mitzvah of zrizut, of alacrity, of doing things immediately, doing things with positive energy, doing things right away, not procrastinating, um, looking at those things in our own lives where we're more li likely to procrastinate and trying to zero in for each one of us personally, what things excite us that we're run to do, what things we don't do very easily and quickly, right? Decluttering, bringing our clothes to the gemach. Yay, Rhonda! And um, you inspired me. I, I, it's, it, you inspired me. Whenever you meet somebody who's decluttering, you're like, okay, I better go home and start decluttering. <laughs> anyway, anyway, ladies, thank you so much for joining me. I hope we're going to have a class next Wednesday. I haven't decided yet. I did think it depends how much junk I'm buried underneath and how, you know, how far along I am in this process. Um, but I'll keep you posted. And we will have a class on Sunday.